Welcome to Paved Paradise, a podcast about housing in Los Angeles, told from the perspective of residents, activists, artists, and city officials. I'm your host, Sue Bell Yank. This week, we tackle part two of housing, the solutions. If you have not heard part one, I suggest you listen to that one first, as it addresses many of the problems that have led us to our current housing and affordability crisis. In this episode, we begin to investigate what solutions are within reach and what seems impossible. Must our entire economic system and priorities shift to address this crisis? And by how much? There was an Onion article, very sobering Onion article I saw from a few days ago. The headline was, um, uh, this family is fighting gentrification by refusing to live in anything but a 100% white neighborhood. (laughs) Here's a quote from the article, which is called, Fighting gentrification, this white family refuses to live in any neighborhood that isn't 100% white. Quote, While well-off white people continue to push minorities out of historic neighborhoods from Brooklyn to L.A., the Hubbards refuse to be part of this distressing trend by adamantly insisting that they live in an area that has been entirely all-white for well over 50 years, going above and beyond to ensure they aren't complicit in displacing a minority community These socially aware heroes repeatedly asked their realtor to make sure that no Black, Hispanic, or Asian families had ever lived at their new home at any point before signing the papers. End quote. But I have been justifiably seeing a lot of those kinds of arguments from uh, people who live in neighborhoods that are gentrifying, Mm -hmm. basically telling uh, white people to stay out of these neighborhoods and they're not wrong i mean like a a white person moving in is a threat um in terms of their property values going up and and them uh, getting evicted so how if we consider that racial uh, geographic coexistence would be a good thing to be able to have without harm uh, how do we create the circumstances so that can exist and i think the answer is having different kinds of housing at all levels in the same area and something an essential thing that has to be a part of it is subsidized housing. That was Hayes Davenport, a housing activist, writer, and host of LA Podcast. You also heard him on the last episode. And you'll hear lots of the same folks again because in our last housing episode, they described the problems of the LA housing affordability crisis to us. Problems like lack of density, unfair state housing laws that limit rent control, and incentivize the eviction of low-income tenants, and a global real estate market that rewards speculation. Back in our redlining episode, we learned about racial housing covenants and the desire for homogeneity from whites in the city, which led to segregated neighborhoods that were officially encoded by the redlining maps of the 1930s. Now, because of skyrocketing housing costs, the segregation of neighborhoods continues through gentrification and displacement. Low-income renters, who are more often black and brown, are pushed out of neighborhoods by increasing real estate speculation and privileged wealthy whites who can afford higher prices. This has led to both backlash and hand-wringing and increasing conflict in some neighborhoods that are fighting back against forces of gentrification. I hear a lot of people saying just like people shouldn't move here. Both uh, people who are uh, low income or homeless shouldn't come to LA. People who are at higher level, uh, higher income shouldn't come to LA. I don't accept that as as a as a solution. I think we 
You know, it's the second big, biggest city in America. We should be making room for people. We start with eviction defense lawyer Jennifer Ganada, who was also a member of the LA Tenants Union and an organizer. Jennifer had recently gone to a policy link conference called Equity Summit in Chicago in April of 2018 and heard a talk from Don Phillips, the executive director of the Right to the City Alliance, a national group that studies gentrification and displacements. She identified three structural factors that lead to this situation in cities which mirror what we learned in our last episode about the causes of the housing crisis. And let me see. Actually, I think I have notes from it. First was we need to acknowledge historically that there are structural and systemic issues of disinvestment in communities, and that's kind of what creates sort of the beginning of gentrification. Like, all of that it was systemic. Like, that's not, it doesn't just happen out of the blue. And then we have to acknowledge that there are government policies, both federal, state, and local policies, that have allowed for this to occur for the disinvestment, and that there is a profit motive. So let's break down what Jennifer is talking about here. You know that cute little neighborhood with the bodegas and taco trucks, the one with so much character? You know how all the houses are being torn down or flipped in favor of luxury condos or home prices that seem wildly out of reach for the people living there? Have you noticed the gentrification fences? Those horizontal bars that symbolize a more trendy, upmarket housing style that attracts affluent white people? Do you see those new coffee shops with trendy street art murals and names like Ground Zero and Foam that serve $4 drip coffee? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. According to the Right to the City Alliance, some key elements of gentrification include, number one, a history of disinvestment of money, jobs, and other resources from the neighborhood and the city, and much of this disinvestment was the direct result of racist housing policies, lending practices, and redlining. Number two, speculators or developers buying property inexpensively and flipping it to make huge profits. Number three, rezoning, subsidies, and other policies to make development of expensive housing easier and to court new, wealthier, and often white people moving into neighborhoods. And number four, increasing housing costs that price out poor and working class people and people of color to make way for wealthier residents. There's an issue right now. This is like the big question that uh, I do not know the answer to, but I think if we figure this out, then LA will be the perfect city, basically. <laughs> right now, if you have a good school in the neighborhood, if you have amenities like bike lanes, if it's safe for pedestrians, if there's a low crime rate, that makes a neighborhood too expensive to live in for lots of people. Um, people are worried about new development. I mean, like new condo development is not necessarily the same kind of public good, but if you take neighborhoods that don't have these good amenities uh, and you improve the schools, make them safer to live in, uh, right now we'll raise the prices such that a lot of people will have to leave. And so the fundamental question for me is how do you take things that are objectively better for the people who live there, education, safety, and all those things, and allow them to stay in neighborhoods that are being improved. How do we fight that? Like how, what are the solutions we put in place? 
And then at Ranked the City, they were talking about we need to have um, very strong anti-eviction defense models. So that means like having tenants' rights, tenants' workshops, legal services, funding so people can have a right to an attorney. But it also requires us to have community-driven planning. Any sort of um, investment into a community that's, that is typically like lower income, disinvested, if you don't have stabilization policies, like the tenants' rights, the anti-eviction work, then you will create displacement no matter what. So right to the city was talking about that. You can't just, even if it's public or private and it's, it's an improvement in the community, you can't just put it there without actually having the community have a say in it. And then the third one was they're pushing that we need to think about community control of land and housing. So those are the three, like they're bigger picture things, but those are things that we should probably aspire to figure out. So I think when I'm talking about the land trust and things like that, I am trying to figure out how do we get community control of land. The solutions Jennifer identifies, strong anti-eviction defense, community-centered planning, in which the community has a say in how their local neighborhood develops, and community control of land, meaning that land is owned and land use decisions are made collectively by the people who live on it, are all highly localized solutions that grow out of the framework of the right to the city. This idea, originally framed out by French urban theorist Henri Lefebvre, in 1968, was in response to seeing how capitalism was commodifying urban space, making inequalities worse and uprooting the social interactions of communities. Embracing the right to the city, he proposed, would, quote, rescue the citizen as main element and protagonist of the city that he himself had built, end quote, and to transform urban space into, quote, a meeting point for building collective life. Anti-gentrification movements have used this framing as a concept around which to organize grassroots movements of citizens, demand community-based city planning that takes in the specific needs of each local neighborhood in collectively planning their future, and even propose new ways to own property in co-ops and land trusts. This citizen-driven urban planning is hyper-local and is meant to put power over place back in the hands of the people who live there, rather than in local government or even global market forces. How can that happen? How can we actually build a city for people and not for profit? Jennifer is actually a board member for something called the Beverly Vermont Community Land Trust. A community land trust is a democratically controlled nonprofit organization that aims to separate land from the housing on that land in order to keep that housing affordable in perpetuity. So in other words, the land trust owns the land, and the resident owns the house on it. This gives land trusts the ability to ensure that housing prices can remain affordable and stable from owner to owner, despite the skyrocketing price of the land itself. And the land trust can really respond to local conditions, making sure vulnerable populations do not get displaced, and help encourage longer-term home ownership of low-income people, to help fight gentrification. This is a very different way of viewing property in a capitalist system. Land trusts are great because the the idea of it is that you make the the building more affordable. So the building above the ground is called an improvement. 
the improvement becomes affordable if you take out the interest of the land. So one organization owns the land, what's below, and the other organization in the land trust would own the building. Or it could be it could be a homeowner who owns the building, but it's part of this land trust. So everybody is, um, like there is usually a set of principles within the land trust. The only issue though now, it's hard to acquire property because even if you you broke up the 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 interest in the land in that way, like in a community land trust, you still have to have a huge amount of capital to purchase the building in the beginning. So that's, like I think, a very large issue right now. I think what, what people can do, though, is the city has multiple properties that are public lands that they could theoretically use, so those things should probably be in a land trust. And I think they've been working on that. I'm not entirely sure, but I like I've heard... I know that most of the public public lands that the, the city does have, have have been like earmarked to you know become permanent supportive housing or something like that, so there would be deeply affordable housing on top of that. Cooperative housing is another affordable option that it's pretty different from private property ownership. When you buy into a co-op, you become a shareholder in a corporation that owns the property. As a shareholder, you are entitled to exclusive use of a housing unit in the property. Often, decisions are made by the collective of residents or an elected board of directors for larger co-ops, and everyone is expected to pitch in for maintenance costs and improvements. You can live in a co-op situation. It's, it's pretty affordable there. But then it's an intentional community. So what does that mean to have an intentional community? And I think, especially in L.A., most people are not geared towards that. I think that's something more common maybe in the Bay. But I think people are trying to figure out, like, how do you get community control? When you start talking about capitalism, I think most people get turned off. Because then it's just like, oh, well, then you're just a communist. But but if you really thought about it, like, most people lived in communal areas in a communal sort of setting... This idea of private property, it's not very intuitive, right? Like it's not like you have like you created a market, but the market's sort of artificial. So why don't we see land trusts and co-ops popping up everywhere? In some areas of the country, they are more prevalent than others, but in general, are ingrained notions of buying your own house, owning your own plot of land, are a deep part of our psyche and hard to give up. And globally, real estate has never been more important. The private ownership of property is foundational to our market. It's currency. It's very difficult to incentivize other forms of land use to allow for more affordable or subsidized land use or community-driven stabilization measures. It seems really intractable. But clearly, the single-family home is no longer a sustainable model. One issue that Jennifer raised is that by the time things get bad enough so that ideas like land trust and co-ops enter the mainstream, property has already become much too expensive. So how do you still welcome people into a city without any way to accommodate them? I think you just get the government in the the game first, whether it's with a land value tax or um, just sufficient. If you do want to own property, uh, you're putting enough back into the system to make it 
cheaper for everyone else. I think basically uh, a house should be something that you buy to live in and not to speculate on. But I think in the existing system that we have, I think we have to be careful of policies that could be uh, really harmful, um, not just for people who live here, but for people who want to move here eventually uh, and for the kids of people who live here. Um, I think that's something that we lose sight of sometimes. If we have universal rent control with vacancy decontrol, everyone who lives here is in a much better position. They get to stay in their place. Anyone who wants to move here is not going to be able to afford it. It's going to be vastly less affordable uh, for people living outside the city. Um, And this is where job opportunities are. We have to try to reconcile this idea that we're one of the most welcoming cities in America with how expensive it is. By getting the government into the game, what we're really talking about is public housing. Public housing in the United States has a complicated and fraught history. Up until the 1930s, government involvement in housing was mostly to enforce building codes and health and safety standards. But after the Great Depression in 1937, Congress passed the Wagner-Steagall Housing Act, which established the first United States Housing Authority and led to the construction of 52 public housing projects across the nation. These first projects were one to four story apartment buildings constructed around wide open spaces. They were often built on vacant or industrial land and were segregated as all white or all black. After the fair deal of 1949 under Truman, the government began pouring money into public housing, calling for, quote, a decent home in a decent environment for every American, end quote, and setting a goal of 810,000 new units. At the same time, however, it called for demolishing and redeveloping slums, which usually meant low-income urban neighborhoods of color. This is when we start to see sections of the city raised to the ground in favor of massive high-rise housing projects with thousands of units in one or two city blocks. Two decades later, as the spearhead of a major backlash against so-called urban renewal slash-and-burn tactics, urban theorist Jane Jacobs describes redevelopment like this. Quote, Low-income projects that become worse centers of delinquency, vandalism, and general social hopelessness than the slums they were supposed to replace. Middle-income housing projects, which are truly marvels of dullness and regimentation, sealed against any buoyancy or vitality of city life. Luxury housing projects that mitigate their inanity or try to with vapid vulgarity. This is not the rebuilding of cities. This is the sacking of cities, end quote. Of course, the low-income projects in particular became stigmatized as places of high crime, vandalism, and poorly maintained living units, mostly because they were severely underfunded and poorly managed. Some claimed they had the severe effect of concentrating poverty, though this has been hotly debated with others saying that public housing projects were not wholly responsible for the concentration of poverty. Either way, some of these buildings had become quite bleak places. By 1968, support for massive public housing developments had already waned. 
The Fair Housing Act prohibited families from living in high-rise public housing apartments, declaring them unfit for children. By the 70s, Nixon declared a moratorium on all public housing projects currently in development, and the government was already experimenting with voucher programs like Section 8 that would allow low-income folks dependent on public housing to enter the private market. Even when we did public housing before, in the beginning, it was in response to like having actually middle-class families have housing that could be subsidized. Like I know LA is, is built the way that it is built and was laid out in this way because in the beginning, the, a lot of land was supposed to be allotted to multifamily dwelling homes, so apartment buildings. Um, but because there was such a strong anti-communist feeling at that time, the developers were able to push single-family homes because the head of the housing department, or HUD, didn't want to have all these multifamily dwelling units because those were like hotbeds of communist organizing. So if you have more people living in a concentrated area, then they would organize. But if you had them living in single family homes, then people are like sort of tied up in their mortgage. Like you can't lose your job and you have to make those payments because you have like, otherwise you'll get kicked out too. You just lose your home. So, I mean, I don't know. I think all of that stems from from that part and then now we're just like here and everyone's like this is so crazy why is this like happening and I was like, well it's been happening i i think it was maybe intentionally ruined in the 50s and 60s yeah. with the giant housing complexes that were um built as ghettos essentially and then allowed to fail uh and yeah. so now people can point to pruitt i go in st louis or cabrini green uh in chicago and say like well look what happened in these places that were work. mismanaged yeah. to death I think there are ways, especially here, there's no premium on space in L.A. Where, like, we could be spreading this kind of housing out around the city uh, in a way that it could definitely be right. successful. There are a lot of negative connotations associated with public housing in the United States that are strongly related to race. Because of historical segregation, racist housing policies, and disinvestment in neighborhoods of color, these were often the places that were torn down and replaced by large public housing towers, where many of the displaced residents had no choice but to move into. But as a solution to the affordability crisis now, it should be on the table. In the 80s, a form of public housing called scattered site housing began to be implemented, with varying success. This involved scattering single or multiple unit public housing in a diverse array of middle-class neighborhoods, primarily to avoid segregated neighborhoods and the concentration of poverty believed to be associated with large apartment towers. However, many local residents in these areas fought vehemently against public housing in their neighborhoods, believing it would decrease their property values. This housing also can fall prey to the problems that plagued other public housing in the past, including unsafe living conditions, poor construction, and poor maintenance. The most popular alternative to public housing was instituted in 1974 in the form of a housing voucher, now known as Section 8. This included assistance from the government for eligible people that would help make up the gap between 30% of the person's income and the cost of rent on the private market. But it has major problems, too. Problems that have only been exacerbated in recent years. 
my understanding is that Section 8 was created basically because landowners uh, wanted to be able to continue to profit from the real estate market. Uh, so it was kind of like a, a compromise. Here's Betty Medin, a housing advocate and organizer as part of the LA Tenants Union. So in theory, person who has a Section 8 voucher, you should be able to rent in any part of the city, but that's not the case, right? So there's lots of discrimination too. So this other alternate solution that was supposed to be like another option that's not public housing also isn't working in the way that it's supposed to. The people who are asked out in the end are those people who have the least, the least amount of options in terms of housing. For Section 8 to really be a legitimate answer to the housing crisis, as public housing was originally meant to be, remember Truman, who said, quote, a decent home in a decent environment for every American? Well, first of all, everyone who really needs a voucher in order to afford housing should be able to get one. In 2017, L.A. opened its Section 8 waiting list for the first time in 13 years. 13 years. Over 600,000 people applied and 20,000 were selected by lottery to be added to the waiting list, a waiting list that took 13 years to get through. So clearly, there's a problem with resources. And even if you are lucky enough to get a Section 8 voucher, you still have to find a place that will take it. And no landlord uh, in his or her right mind is going to be eager to maintain property as Section 8 property in a housing market where they can get premium dollars for apartments that were unrentable. This is Carol Sobel, a distinguished homeless rights and housing lawyer who won landmark cases with the ACLU. Here she is speaking with members of the LA Poverty Department, an organization who works with the arts and homelessness on LA's Skid Row, and graciously provided this audio from their archive. For a number of properties, they, you get money from the federal government, loans to, um, to rehab property, to purchase property, whatever, with the guarantee that you will provide a certain amount of Section 8 housing in exchange for that. And so you get these loans at very low rates. Those loans are expiring. It's like any kind of a mortgage or anything. So those are expiring. And a number of years ago, back when the, the before this time, it, when the housing market was way up before you know, this uh, economic recession, a lot of landlords across the country bought out their Section 8 loans because the housing prices, the, the market prices for apartments and things, had gone up so much that they could afford to buy out those loans and charge more for the properties. Many landlords have found the booming rental market just too attractive to continue offering Section 8. Originally, they got low-interest loans in exchange for providing Section 8, but now those loans are expiring or have been bought out, and landlords are incentivized to get out of Section 8 loans altogether and just rent at market rate. There are quite a few people living out of their cars in Los Angeles who have Section 8 vouchers, and just can't find housing that's near their jobs and networks of support. So I work with a group called uh, SELA, like a neighborhood homeless advocacy group, uh, where we go out into the area and um, we engage with people experiencing homelessness, um, and we try to set them up with services. Uh, The homeless service organizations here are really overextended, so they don't usually know who needs help. 
in the area, especially in our neighborhood, which doesn't get as much attention as Skid Row. So we'll talk to people on the street and we'll email these organizations and say like, hey, come talk to this person. This person really needs this kind of services. So my friend and I have been working with uh, this one couple specifically who had a Section 8 voucher uh, that uh, lapsed. It expired uh, because it only lasts for something like six months. And the only place that was offered to them uh, was up in Lancaster. Where, you know, they said, we don't have a car. It's impossible to get there. Yes. I yeah. mean, and once you get there, you never get out. Yeah. And, like, they said, we have people in this neighbor. We're from Echo Park. Mm-hmm. Like, this is where we live. This is, we, we have family members here. We're not trying to move 20 miles away just to have a roof over our heads. Our life in a tent is is better than being totally isolated, you know, just in, in an apartment where you have no job, no car, no people. My friend and I, we made an arrangement with them where we were going to meet them and drive them to um, the housing department to try and see about getting this voucher back. The couple take their little dog and a carrier. We get, we all get in a lift, and we drive to the housing department. We ask questions about the voucher. We get everything uh, sort of clarified. Then we hop back in another lift to go back to where they live. Uh, and I'm talking to the Lyft driver, and he's asking what we were doing, you know, what were you guys doing, like getting lunch or something. Uh, and I said, we were at the housing department, just had to ask some people some questions. And the guy driving the Lyft keeps asking more and more questions about what we were doing. And then he drops us off, we get out of the Lyft, uh, and he calls me back. And he says he's living in his Lyft car. Uh, he's been homeless for a couple months. He has no idea where to begin to get services. He doesn't think that anything is available to him because he works. He has two part-time jobs, uh, but he still isn't making enough money to get into housing. Uh, and so he was asking, like, what is? Can your organization like set me up with how? Like, how do I get in back into the system? And so it was just this experience of working to get how hard it is to get uh, people back into housing, uh, like, you know, taking one car ride to try to get people back into housing, and you meet someone else who has just fallen out. Yeah. Uh, like, you you literally can't throw a rock in yeah. this in this city without finding someone that is either homeless or right on the verge. Right on the end, yeah. Yes. Um, so just the scale of the problem is really daunting, and I think it requires a solution that's just as extreme. The the city and county had a big meeting a few weeks ago with a number of landlords trying to convince them to to rent to vets, 400 vets with Section 8 vouchers who cannot find houses. It is extremely difficult. And then once you get in, you know, a lot of the landlords treat the Section 8 people as if they are pariahs and, you know, have special rules for them. And so a lot of people don't survive in, in that in that community because it's not uh, it, it's harsher rules for them than for anyone else in a, in a complex. Even if you've solved all the problems of Section 8, some of the most vulnerable people in our society would still get left out. You have to have some kind of income to even be eligible. And this is just not possible for everyone who needs housing. You don't get the Section 8 housing. You have to have something in order to pay it. Um, um, the only time you don't need any income other than maybe general relief is if you're going into something like Skid Row Housing Trust, where it is you know a percentage of you know of general relief and it's still really low, or percentage of disability and it's really low. But 
Section 8 is, you know, Section 8 housing is mostly aimed at uh, people who have some income but live at the poverty level. So what is the city doing about Section 8 and the housing crisis? In May of 2016, KPCC, a Southern California public radio station, reported a story about Section 8 discrimination. Since it's legal in California, unlike other states, to discriminate against renters paying with Section 8, the housing authority of the city of Los Angeles is trying to incentivize landlords to give those voucher holders a chance. The city is in a difficult position, however, because Section 8 vouchers only cover up to the fair market rent for the region, which is determined by the federal government. In Los Angeles, that's a little over $1,600 a month. However, many neighborhoods in the city have median rents far higher than that, from over $2,800 a month for a two-bedroom apartment in downtown to well over $3,000 a month in Santa Monica. So many landlords in these areas are not incentivized to accept Section 8 vouchers. Mayor Eric Garcetti said of Section 8, quote, Angelinos deserve housing they can afford, no matter their income. People who are eligible should apply for the Section 8 subsidy program and will keep fighting to build more affordable housing that gives every family the opportunity to find safe, stable places to live, end quote. If Angelinos really all deserve housing they can afford, in other words, if housing really is a human right, then we need to do way, way more than Section 8. Those same soaring rent prices also incentivize landlords to evict tenants from rent-stabilized apartments, where they can only raise the rent by 3% per year. As we talked about last episode, because LA has vacancy decontrol, If those tenants leave, the landlord can jack up the rents to the very high market rate cost. So there is a lot of eviction abuse. Low-income or vulnerable tenants who have lived in their apartments for a long time, getting harassed or even illegally evicted. All kinds of shenanigans. So one part of the solution to stem the tide of gentrification is to have a strong, coordinated anti-eviction defense infrastructure. That really starts with the city and requires not only resources, but also really good communication between city departments. That's a major issue too in in LA is just the weakness of the housing department. So it's called the Housing and Community Investment Department. I think that's the formal name, HCID. Basically a support for renters. You're able to put in complaints to the housing department if you have a landlord, for instance, who's not fulfilling their obligations with regards to repairs or who may be giving you illegal rent increases. Lots of people that we've encountered don't know the housing department exists, first of all. If they have submitted claims, um, either they don't get a response or housing department sending a letter to the landlord isn't always enough for the landlord to then comply. The harassment issue is a big one that they're, they're not really that they don't have something in place in terms of, in their work of how they deal with harassment issues. They sort of have things in place of, uh, you know, having an inspector see if a building owner is in compliance, but uh, it's difficult to get support for that kind of thing. The company was Western Regional Properties, and they were just doing all the stuff like harassment. Like basically, they wanted to retenant the building, which means they kick everybody out and then replace it with new people. And I saw it, like, so this is the first building I'm working on. And then I think the same landlord purchases the building in Boyle Heights. 
and I get the tenants in that building. And it just so happens to be, like, we're not even looking out for these cases. But it just happens to be that I get this case again with the same landlord. And I was like, I'm going to do this all over again. Because it was crazy. The, the attorney he had hired before was, like, personally attacking me. It was, like, nuts, right? Like, it was just, like, crazy town. So I went to a community forum. A tenant at 240 North Robinson was at the same thing. And he said, can you help me? And he showed me what the notice was for. It was actually his brother lived in the building. And his brother is really sick and he had a 90 year old mom she had since died or whatever like after this lawsuit and everything and i said yeah we can look at it and then i saw the landlord and it was the same western regional right but i think that they were related right i couldn't prove it i don't like also when you're doing uds like this you don't have all that time to just sort of research crap and figure out like what you know my friend has um <laughs> she's like obsessed with this idea of having like a board and like yarn like red yeah, yarn and pictures and yeah. doing it that's like all she always wants to do she's like we just had yarn and a board and pictures and i was like no we're not gonna do that and she like oh she's like we can figure this all like out CSI or something. yeah she's like we could figure out the housing prices typically my office currently where i work but we don't take smaller buildings like that but i was like we need to figure out how to like at least like tell the city like we are watching these buildings and like you need to help us because otherwise we're gonna have to sue you like maybe we won't sue the landlord we have to sue you for not like actually enforcing the law if the city is unable to crack down on bad landlords then maybe we have to do it the old-fashioned way by banding together to fight unfairness in other words grassroots activism here's betty medin who explains how the L.A. Tenants Union evolved from a group of artists and activists researching gentrification in the city to one of the most powerful grassroots housing organizations in Los Angeles right now. I entered the housing rights work not through this sort of deep-seated interest in housing rights, but actually through an interest in, in popular education. So when I moved back to L.A. after living in Portland, Oregon for a few years, I met with uh, a group of artists and educators and activists called the School of Echoes, and they had been on a journey to research gentrification. One of the ways to resist gentrification that they had identified was forming a tenants' union. So that's the point that I entered School of Echoes, and based on my interest in in that research and work, I sort of jumped into this experiment <laughs> of forming a tenants' union, which was is and continues to be an experiment. And there hasn't necessarily been a grassroots tenants union in the sense of a lot of the different housing rights organizations, renters' rights organizations, are nonprofit organizations, so ultimately run by staff. And so this was an effort to kind of join those forces, but also build more of a grassroots movement that was relying on renters themselves. According to Betty, the origin and foundation of the LA Tenants Union is based on the idea of popular education, which was codified in the 1960s by Paulo Freire of Brazil. The way I understand popular education is a form of education that's focused on building off of people's experiences, their lived experiences, having that really be what feeds the content of the education, and also it being a process where people can actually become critical about their lived experience and figure out ways to change it. 
Not only were these theories the basis of organizing things like the LA Tenants Union, they are a part of organizing any kind of grassroots movement. So much so that his major book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, was banned in several authoritarian countries like South Africa under apartheid. Basically, he meant that the core importance of education is to awaken people to the power systems that are oppressing them, get them to think critically about their own situations, and then organize amongst themselves to change that power structure in a way that serves everyone better. He put these theories into practice in Brazil in the 60s by teaching hundreds of illiterate farm workers how to read in just 45 days. This gave them political power because literacy was a requirement for voting at the time. Though the current situation in LA is very different from 1960s Brazil, the School of Echoes, that group of artists and activists Betty mentioned, used similar methods in forming the Tenants' Union. They started by going all over the city, to churches, community centers, corner stores, anywhere people gathered, and asked them a simple question. What is the biggest concern that your community has right now? Over and over again, they heard the same thing. Gentrification. Displacement. Displacement. Gentrification. Displacement. Housing. Gentrification. Displacement. Housing. Displacement. Displacement. So they decided to do intensive research into gentrification. What were its causes? How do you fight it? And they came to the same conclusion as Dawn Phillips from the Right to the City Alliance that I mentioned earlier. Start with tenants' rights education and organization. They felt like this was something they could help with, getting tenants to start banding together. This had the potential to become a powerful force. Here's Betty again. One of the things that we've been doing in our work is just really emphasizing the importance of renters coming together and coming together not only in, in the sense of the tenants union, which is, you know, a citywide movement, but also coming together at the most basic level, which is the building level. Basically, when a building owner who's abusive recognizes that the renters know actually know their rights, that they know what their resources are, that they are involved with the union, that they want to that they formed an association. Uh, we've had many cases where basically they ba- they back off, they stop harassing the tenants, they actually take care of repairs. I guess I'll just share a story of a building that we've been working with in Venice, and it's um it's a smaller building. It's like probably twelve or fourteen units, um, and a lot of the families who live there, immigrant families. It's a it's a rent stabilized building. The owner had been giving them illegal rent increases, sort of trying to evict them for very petty reasons. I'm not sure how they found the tenants' union, but they they found us somehow. I think maybe we left a flyer in their building. And they've been a great a great group to work with. It's mostly women-led. Those are the, who, the people who show up to the meetings. So it's a bunch of uh, moms and... Um, they were the kinds of folks who didn't know there was a housing department and now they've learned uh, that there is one they've learned how to like file complaints with the housing department you know how to you know work with the inspectors who come do the inspections 
they've communicated with the landlord in that way. They've actually fought evictions together and won their cases with the support of the tenants union. They haven't heard from their landlord again. So there was sort of this, these incidents that all happened together. They organized themselves and now have been kind of been able to relax because I think something that we see a lot is the amount of stress that difficult housing situation causes for anybody. One is like, being threatened to lose your home, which is sort of the worst, but then there's other levels of stresses of dealing with, you know, a lack of repairs or dealing with a landlord who's harassing you constantly or dealing with, you know, surveillance or or all kinds of things that we, we see and just the amount of stress that that causes for people and, and their children is is something that we constantly have to, to deal with too and trying to create spaces in the tenants union where people feel like they're being heard but also feeling like they're you know they're learning something and being empowered and feeling like they can they can help themselves and help other people the system that we need is to protect people that are currently living here you can you combine serious tenant protections with massive new housing proliferation i think that's uh, that's the only way out of this Some think it might already be too late, that too much has already been lost. But I believe with radical new ideas and the political will to make them happen, that the needle can be moved. This pressure will only come by participating in consistent, widespread, on-the-ground campaigns for robust public housing, alternative community land ownership models, stronger tenants' rights, and a much denser city. And those will only happen if we can successfully shift our cultural outlook around housing. Is it possible to change hearts and minds so that the idea of not in my backyard is a thing of the past? So that residents are demanding permanent supportive housing for their homeless neighbors? So that ultimately we give up the pool, the garden, and even our treasured parking in favor of a denser, diverse, and more lively city? This may seem a pretty tall order. It's definitely a radical rethinking of the California dream. But maybe that dream has always been an illusion, or something that only the privileged few have access to. And it's time to face reality. And what it really comes down to is taking responsibility for one another, taking care of one another in the places where we live. This radical reimagining has got to come from the people. And those in privileged positions need to support their neighbors in this fight and demand a livable city for all. Next time, we explore the inevitable result of our current housing reality, homelessness, and what we can learn from the last skid row in America. Many thanks to Betty Marin, Jennifer Ganada, and Hayes Davenport. Thanks as well to the LA Poverty Department and Carol Sobel, who allowed me to use a previously recorded interview. If you're looking into helping with the fight for affordable housing in LA, the LA Tenants Union is a great place to start. And I've added a link on our website, pavedparadisepodcast.com. Be sure to also check out LA Podcast, which Hayes hosts, and is a great breakdown of Los Angeles policy and politics. Thanks, as always, to Mike Yank for composing the music for Paved Paradise. 
Check out our website, pavedparadisepodcast.com, for more information about past and future episodes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.